The following podcast may be a little dirty, but forget about that. I'm going to tell you to go to our Twitter feed at SlateGist.com. It's Monday, October 26, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Nagorno-Karabakh is a region almost entirely surrounded by Azerbaijan, but it is almost entirely peopled with ethnic Armenians. 26 years ago, after the USSR disintegrated, the area was the site of a war in which tens of thousands were killed, hundreds of thousands were displaced. The U.S. didn't play a big part in that conflict, and it didn't get much attention, except maybe in the U.S. and ethnic Armenian communities, though pre-Kardashian, Armenians weren't nearly as widely paid attention to. I am not kidding. The conflict actually goes back at least to the Ottoman Empire and is one of those remote, seemingly unsolvable situations in which there is no quote-unquote good guy, though each side can certainly point to atrocities committed against them. That said, the ceasefire that ended the war did create a situation where hundreds of thousands of Armenians are essentially stateless. They live within Azerbaijan, but not as Azerbaijanis. They don't want to. Adding to the complications are that the two great powers of the region, Turkey and Russia, each have a side. The Turks backing their co-religionists, the Azerbaijanis and Armenia, being supported by Russia. There have been three ceasefires thus far in the latest iteration of the conflict, which has included shelling in Azerbaijan's second biggest city, Ganja. Yeah, I know. Death toll at least in the hundreds, high hundreds, possibly in the low thousands. Now think back to the words I've used to describe this conflict and words you may have thought of along the way. War-torn, long-simmering, complicated. Think of how you might describe all these ceasefires which have failed to hold. Even if you can not think of the exact phrase that I'm trying to evoke, the international reporting can provide a prompt. An uneasy truce is already showing signs of fracture in the breakaway region of Nagorno-Karabakh. Okay, with all that in mind, now conjure an earnest Armenian-American searching for an answer, hoping his or her president can help. Armenians have been beseeching the Trump administration to intervene. His case of COVID got in the way, but... Eventually, he got around to it, and yesterday at a rally in New Hampshire, he addressed his administration's actions and described them the following way. Look at the Armenian. They are incredible people. They're fighting like hell, right? They're fighting like hell. And you know what? We're going to get something done because, thank you, and I love you too. You know, the Armenians have had a tough, they've had a tough go. But I saw, in fact, I was in Yesterday, Ohio, actually. I was in Ohio during, because I went to various stops, but in Ohio, we had a tremendous group of Armenians with the flag and the whole thing, the spirit. And the problems that they have and the death and the fighting and everything else, we'll get that straightened out. That's going to be, I call that an easy one, okay? We'll get that. Go back and tell your people. Go back and tell your people, all right? We'll get that straightened out. Armenia. Why not? It's easy. If you know what you're doing, if you know what you're doing, it's like that. If you know what you're doing, it's easy. Now, most of the Armenian population in the U.S. 
are concentrated in big blue cities like L.A. and New York, Boston. But there are Armenians, and I think Trump just found this out, in swing states. There are 30 to 60,000 near Detroit and a few thousand in Ohio. So why not promise them progress? You know, it actually is the United States' job to mediate the conflict. They are one of three countries, along with France and Russia, in the Minsk group. So what did he do? He promised progress. But of course, he had to go further than that into the world of the nonsensical and fictitious. It's so easy. Indeed, it wasn't that hard to declare a ceasefire. The ceasefire did go into effect 8 a.m. local time today. The BBC reports it's already been violated, quote, within minutes of the ceasefire coming into effect, Azerbaijan accused Armenian forces of shelling the town of Turtur and nearby villages in gross violation of the agreement. Armenia's defense ministry said Azerbaijani artillery had fired on military positions in various parts of the front line after the ceasefire agreement had begun. So easy. All so, so easy. Like winning a trade war is easy. Like no one knew health care was hard. Now, I doubt the vast majority of American voters would be able to identify which side of an Armenian-Azerbaijani battle the United States should be on, let alone who should the U.S. back in a proxy fight between Putin and Erdogan. Maybe Trump supporters think, well, it's not Putin because no one's been tougher on Putin than Trump, right? Maybe they think it is Erdogan. After all, he's the guy of whom Trump said. We've uh, assured each other that Turkey will continue to uphold what it's supposed to uphold. I'm a a big fan of the president, to tell you that. But no, you heard what Trump said. Turns out we're supportive of the Armenians in this dispute. Okay, but if for, I don't know, five or six seconds, an Armenian was given hope, it is immediately undone by Trump talking about how smart he is, how easy it is, how better than generations of diplomats and combatants he is. Yes, good. Like that ceasefire, which lasted as long as Donald Trump's attention span. On the show today, spiel not about the Nagorno-Karabakh region, but about that other area the president obsesses over, the television screen. But first, this week, we thought we'd pick a few states to check in on as their voting continues. Voting for president, voting for the Senate in the states we've chosen. And we'd also like to include an update on just the general state of balloting on the ground or in the mail. Today, I've got Georgia on my mind and on the podcast. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter 
and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter, or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So this week on The Gist, we are going to do something special, not to indicate or implicate that most shows aren't special. But every day we're going to go to a different state that has an area of drama or intrigue or conflict or concern. We're looking for states where voting is close in the presidential election and or that maybe have a close Senate election and or where maybe voting laws or procedures will come under fire. Well, we've got a state for you that not only has three of those things, it actually has four out of those three things because Georgia has two Senate elections and all the rest of it. Bill Nygut hosts the Political Rewind podcast and show on Georgia Public Broadcasting. He's been doing this for a long time. Hi, Bill. Thanks for coming on The Gist. Yeah, it's good to be with you. So two Senate elections, uh, that's because a Senator Johnny Isaacson retired early, then Kelly Loeffler was his replacement. So let's start with that race. That's the special election. What makes it so special? <laughs> so uh, just take you, you've already kind of set it up, but yes, last at the end of last year, Johnny Isaacson, a Republican member of the U.S. Senate, retired from his seat. Uh, for health reasons. And um, Governor Brian Kemp, the Republican governor of Georgia, spent about a month or so thinking about how he'd put in that seat until a special election could be held, which will happen on the same day as Election Day, November 3rd. He finally arrived at Kelly Leffler, which was an interesting choice because for a couple reasons. Number one, she's a political novice. Kelly Leffler is her husband. Uh, Jeff Sprecher is owns the New York Stock Exchange. Right, not stocks, uh, the exchange. <laughs> they, he owns the exchange, and he owns exchanges in, in globally as well. Uh, so she is. I think. I think I'm right that she is now, since she's taken her seat by appointment, the wealthiest person in the United States Senate. She's enormously wealthy. Kemp put her in that seat partly because she said she'd self-fund her race, but uh, um, he also put her there because, as we all know, Republicans are losing suburban women, particularly across the country, and it's certainly happening, particularly in metro Atlanta. So she left her look like somebody who might help bring women back to uh, the Republican Party. The problem is that Congressman Doug Collins, who became a national figure with his vociferous defense of Trump uh, during the impeachment hearings, just one of the most impassioned pro-Trump members of Congress, he expected to be named the temporary senator. It didn't happen, despite the fact that President Trump on three occasions told Brian Kemp that he hoped Doug Collins would be the choice. Collins did not take that lying down, so he jumped into the race. As a result of that, you now have Collins and Leffler, 
both trying to out-Trump each other, each of them moving as far to the right as possible, which has certainly eliminated the possibility that Leffler now can bring suburban women over to the Republican column. But, but the bigger point is, and I probably should have started with this, we now have that special election as a jungle election. If there are 20 candidates, Democrats and Republicans running on the same ballot, and so you have a number of Republicans, Collins and Leffler at the top, but then you have several Democrats, uh, the leading Democrat in that field right now, Raphael Warnock, the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church. He too is a political novice, but right now that race is coming down to a three-way contest between Leffler, Collins, and Warnock, and it will go to a runoff, uh, almost certainly. And it could go to a runoff between the two Republicans, but more likely it will be a runoff between Warnock and one of the two Republicans. So a couple months ago, the polling was indicating that Warnock would be lucky to get in the runoff and people were quite upset at one of his Democratic rivals, Matt Lieberman, son of uh, Senator and former vice presidential candidate Joe Lieberman, get out of the race, they said. But now Warnock is actually ahead in most of the polls and the odds are that either Collins or Leffler will be culled from the herd. So my question is, was it always so apparent that the contest would be to try to out-Trump each other? Was it always so clear? And is that where the politics lay? That the lane is for Republican, and the Republican that Georgians will prefer is the Trumpiest of all Republicans? Well, you know, that's a really interesting question. Had Doug Collins not jumped into that race, and had Kelly Leffler been the clear candidate of, for the Republican Party, she may have been able to run more of a general election campaign uh, for November 3rd and taken on Warnock in a head-to-head contest on November 3rd, and in that way may have tried to move herself a little bit more to the middle. But the minute Collins stepped into that race, you, you essentially have, within the context of this 20-person jungle contest, you essentially have a Republican primary going on, and, and therefore Leffler and Collins both had to run as far to the right as they could. The other day in the Senate debate uh, for ra- what we're calling race number two, Leffler was asked, is there anything President Trump has done or said that you disagree with? Her quote was, no, nothing. And that's the way she has been uh, presenting herself as the Trumpiest of the Trumpites. Let's talk about your other election. It is much less special. It is more straightforward. What does it look like uh, as John Ossoff tries to unseat the incumbent David Perdue? We have a brand new or fairly new New York Times Siena College poll that shows that race as a dead heat. As by the way, it also shows the Trump-Biden race in Georgia. And, and that Siena New York Times poll pretty much mimics what other recent polling, Quinnipiac and others have been showing. I think Quinnipiac had it as a dead heat too. So it's really fascinating that Purdue is fighting for his life in a state that has been electing Republicans to the U.S. Senate for decades. Is Ossoff a good candidate? We last heard of him when he lost a special election in a district that he might not have lived in to 
What's her name? Karen Handel? <laughs> yeah, well, he did. He did not might not have lived in. He didn't live so in. So at least he, at least we know he lives in Georgia. <laughs> right. You know, I, so I'm going to be really candid with you. Thank you, Bill. Uh, for a long time, I wasn't clear on what the Ossoff appeal was. I just didn't quite understand why voters were so taken by him. When, when he ran his special election for that congressional seat, uh, of course, he became a national darling of the Democrats because they really wanted to win after Trump had won the presidential election. They really wanted to win that that six district special election, which is what he ran. And then, of course, he raised tens of millions of dollars. And in those days, I was sort of unclear about him. I have to say that I watched him in a debate this past week and I was surprised at he was really substantive. He really took it to Purdue very directly. I mean, he it this the debate did not appear to be David Purdue, former corporate fi- Fortune 500 executive, self-assured, knowing how to deal with a young newcomer like Asaf. Asaf, in fact, gave him a really uh, hard time, and I came away much more impressed with Asaf than I had been uh, previously. He was quite good. In the national media, there's there's always a bias towards change. And so Georgia, um, as a state in the Deep South, well, you know, the relatively deep South. I went to college there. Some of it's not too, not too deep, but uh, has been has been Republican. Uh, Republicans win statewide office has been since, you know, Jimmy Carter used a Southern strategy to actually beat Gerald Ford. But what are the chances of the state turning blue? When's the last time Democrats had any real success statewide? And a lot of times I do find that the national coverage is always betting on the come as opposed to actually chronicling what has happened in the recent past. I mean, I think that's a good point. I mean, Georgia's been turning Georgia's been turning purple for the last 15 years. I mean, that's what Democrats would have you believe, and it just doesn't happen. All right, so just a brief history on that. The last time a Democratic presidential candidate won Georgia was 1992 when Bill Clinton did. And, and there were circumstances that led to that victory that he did not repeat in 96. In 96, uh, in his reelection campaign, Clinton lost Georgia. That's the last time a Democrat has won state, uh, has won presidential uh, contest in Georgia. And, and the state turned completely red in uh, 2002 and beyond when the last Democratic governor of Georgia, Roy Barnes, what lost his reelection to Sonny Perdue, of course, now the Secretary of Agriculture in the Trump administration. And from that time on, really 2002 on, the state has been controlled entirely by Republicans. Republicans occupy every one of the constitutional officers, labor commissioner, secretary of state, all of those offices, uh, lieutenant governor. And uh, they have the majority in both the House and Senate. A dramatic switch from the late 1990s. So a couple more questions. The presidential race is close. And as I was looking at some of the crosstabs, a couple interesting things jump out. The number of uh, African-American registrants has gone up, but it does seem that Joe Biden isn't polling as well among non 
white voters, which includes, um, of course, Hispanic voters, as Hillary Clinton did. So what? where might some of the vote or interesting wrinkles of where each candidate, presidential candidate, might get their vote come from? Where? What are you looking at? Well, I think you make it. I mean, I think you're right. You've really looked at that in exactly the correct way, I think. Um, Biden will make inroads with white suburban uh, voters. There's no question about that at this point. If you look at cross tabs that break, drill down to to geography as well as gender, but it you know I think the New York Times Siena poll, and I don't have it in front of me right now. I was a little surprised to see that I think Biden's support among African Americans in general was in the mid 80s. I believe people can check that for sure not quite as high as you'd expect it to be. And there were still 10%, according to Siena, of African-American voters who claim to be undecided. The real issue for black voters here is gonna be, uh, what do black men do? Uh, you know the, uh, the Trump campaign has really worked hard to especially attract African-American men to their side. And the Biden people have been trying their best to, to make sure they get them over into their camp. There's an ad campaign that has played in Georgia, which has a number of black men sitting in a barbershop talking about the election. There, it's a Biden, a Biden spot and why Biden would be better. And it's interesting, one of the things that said in one of those spots is one of the, one of the guys in the barbershop says, well, you know, our women are all voting for Joe Biden. And the other one says, well, maybe it's time we got behind him too. So it's been an interesting, an interesting situation. And you know, Twice now, Trump has come here to rally black voters, and uh, and and, he, and 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 I, he's also got Donald Trump Jr. having come in here as recently as this past Friday uh, to speak to black voters. So they're making an effort, and we'll see how that goes. So my last question is this: a lot of states that are purple, and you know, Georgia hasn't gotten there yet, but it's threatening to become purple. What the purple means is that most of the politics are somewhat moderate, somewhat in the middle. It does seem that Georgia is the different kind of average, which could be it's an average because you're taking in two pretty far extremes. Are the politics of Georgia as extreme as they seem from the outside, looking at uh, a Warnock versus Collins slash Leffler dynamic, or is it more of a moderate state? Is it actually more of a state where, you know, reasonable centrism has a lot of sway? Well, I mean, let me, I have two answers for that, actually. Number one, we will find out just how uh, the extremes operate in Georgia on, no, you know, sometime after November 3rd. If Donald Trump wins the state again, uh, I guess you could probably say that, yes, this state is still terribly divided along partisan lines uh, because obviously Trump's not going to win Democratic support in his uh, campaign here. But but here's another aspect of that that's pretty interesting, I think. So when it comes to national politics, the divide is, is great here. There are battle lines drawn. But if you dip down into the Georgia State Legislature, you will see that divide in a different way. The state Senate here is uh, a very conservative body that uh, introduces legislation that, you know, a lot of uh, social engineering legislation, for example, religious liberty bills, 
uh, that sort of thing. You've got a House, though, which may be controlled by Republicans, but you've got a Republican Speaker of the House who has shown over and over again that his effort is going to be to blunt the most extreme measures, social engineering measures particularly, that come to him from the Senate. So I think that's fascinating. I think the legislature is a place, especially on the House side, where we see that there is more of a moderate energy at work. Although it's fair to say that, remember, the Georgia legislature passed and Governor Kemp signed into law a bill that virtually outlaws abortion in Georgia. So it's a, your question is, is complicated. My question is straightforward. The answer is complicated. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Bill Nygut is the host and executive producer of Political Rewind, heard on Georgia Public Broadcasting, but also in podcast form where I listen to it. Absolutely. You can get it wherever podcasts are available. That's right, which is a lot of places. <laughs> Thank you so much, Bill. It's been fun. I really appreciate it. You really know your Georgia politics, and I like talking about politics with people who really know what they're saying about our state. Thank you. And now the spiel. The president was in Michigan and Pennsylvania today, bucking up his spirits by appearing before adoring crowds who were densely packed in and largely unmasked. Peggy Noonan in the Wall Street Journal cited two data points, which she said indicates that Trump might have a fighting chance in this election. One is the answer to a question pollsters asked, are you better off? And 56% told Gallup yes, but 39% said that compared to four years ago, the country was better off, only 39%. To quote Peggy Noonan, what does this mean? No one knows. It's from her column. Thank you, Peggy. Two sentences later, she gets to the second data point. The second data point has to do with Mr. Trump's rallies, big, boisterous, and frequent. She goes on. Mr. Biden doesn't seem to draw much of anybody and doesn't try. He doesn't have rallies and barely even appearances at this point. You can, seeing the polls, hypothesize that what you're seeing at the Trump rallies is a political movement in its death throes. But I don't know. They look lively to me. End quote. That is the second time in two paragraphs this professional political analyst includes the I don't know phrasing. Some say fish like being in water and not on the deck of a boat. But the way the fish was thrashing and flopping around looked lively to me. The swordfish refused to flop on the deck, resisted being caught, in fact. It said it did so because of the metal hook and fishing line pandemic. But I don't know. It's not a great way to signal vigor. In fact, the energizing Trump rallies, energizing to him, might well be enervating to his chances. Each one signals to appalled voters who are reasonably wary of COVID, my God, he keeps making the same mistake over and over and over and shoving it in our faces and his supporters' unmasked faces. The vice president is also out on the hustings despite several people who he's close to, including his chief of staff, Mark Short, testing positive for COVID. 
Mark Meadows, White House chief of staff, defended the vice president's continued public schedule to Jake Tapper on CNN State of the Union. Well, actually, he's not just campaigning. He's working. We saw a a Middle East peace agreement with Sudan in the Oval Office that the president engaged in. And for anybody to suggest that the president has been out campaigning and not getting things done, uh, all you have to do is look at the facts. He was at a campaign rally in Tallahassee. He was just in a campaign rally in Tallahassee. I'm not saying he's not campaigning. I'm saying that that is only part of what he's doing. And as we look at that, essential personnel, whether it's the vice president of the United States or anyone else, but he's not has to continue on. CDC Jake, guidelines. Jake, well, no, Jake, CDC guidelines does say essential personnel. Yes, it if says they wear a mask. mask if they and, wear a mask. Uh, he's essential so he can be out there doing his essential job like forging Sudanese peace agreements. Such work essentially needs to take place before crowds of thousands of people in swing states. I mean, a doctor or an EMT is an essential worker, but when the doctor decides to go to a bowling alley or a massage parlor, then he's an essential worker doing unessential things, unsafe things even. Or maybe an essential worker is like Spider-Man. You're never not Spider-Man, even when it seems like you're a mild-mannered high school student. I don't know, the lizard could be robbing a bank next door. Today in Allentown, Donald Trump did address the COVID crisis. Here were his words of inspiration. Groundbreaking therapies and safe vaccines that quickly end the pandemic. It's ending anyway. We're rounding the turn. It's ending anyway. But the vaccines are going to be incredible. They'll be very quick. Promising a cure that, yeah, let's think about it. It's really unneeded because the whole thing's ending anyway. And his crowds cheer him on, convincing him it's a good message. But the message actually is extremely disconcerting for so many voters who actually might otherwise be inclined to vote for him. And that's only if they're just paying attention to the soundbite, which is what the president wants them to pay attention to, which is why you write soundbites into scripts. It should have been, if he just delivered it as written, should have been fine. Should have said, hey, we're getting therapies. But then he goes and ruins it by freelancing his denialism in the middle of their hope. We shall fight them on the beach. We shall fight them in the fields. But we don't really have to because we're going to beat them anyway. They're going into retreat. But we shall fight them in the streets. So if a voter tuned into a newscast and caught the soundbite, I'd say the voter would be turned off. But let's say the voter said, you know what? I'm going to do my duty. I'm going to watch a whole speech. The voter might be in terrible agony because, and I'm not talking about, you know, a dyed in the wool resistance Democrat. I'm talking about a possibly persuadable voter. I picture an old person in Florida or a mother in the suburbs. And all this person wants is some rational reassurance about their number one concern, the pandemic. But Trump couldn't even get to that. Before detailing what he might call his COVID plan, which is basically mocking Joe Biden for swine flu. Trump spent a lot of time talking about television. There was the television of yesteryear. And then they had, in probably the most exciting evening, maybe in the history of television, right? Sure beats any sporting contest. Even ESPN admitted that. There's never been anything like this. Then you went... Donald Trump has won the state of Florida, right? Remember? But there was also the television of yesterday. Did anybody see 60 Minutes last night? Did anybody see 60 Minutes? At a different point, he said this. Kamala Harris. Did you see her last night on television with the laugh? Ha, ha, ha. She's like... 
It's Kamala, by the way. Embarrassing. So embarrassing. I bet it was an honest mistake. I don't know. Do you think we should judge him harshly for getting a name wrong? Before you answer, he wants you to know for a third time, he saw 60 Minutes, did we? No, did you watch him on 60 Minutes last night? Did you see yesterday when he called me George? No, I don't know if I like George. No, no. Not George. And finally, for a fourth separate time in that rally, he mentioned 60 Minutes again. Did anybody see 60 Minutes? She's a zippo, but always going for the kill. Leslie Stahl, so mean to our president. That wasn't in one distinct part of the speech. Those were separate references. Five minutes in, 10 minutes in, 34 minutes in, 35 minutes in. He spent several minutes talking about 60 minutes. I firmly believe that if you took an undecided voter, sat him or her down, said, watch this whole thing, it would go a long way towards locking up the vote for Joe Biden. They would say, this man cannot be president. This man does not address my concerns and seems to act in a way that are contrary to my concerns. I have actually never seen a political campaign where the biggest obstacle to a candidate's election is the precise message that the candidate has carefully communicated and is being delivered unfiltered by intermediaries. It's just frightening to the electorate what he says and how he acts. I'll come back to the question Jake Tapper asked in framing his interview with Mark Meadows. Who will the American people choose to lead them out of this crisis? That's easy. It's the only candidate who acknowledges that A, it is a crisis, and that B, it will take leadership to get out of the crisis. Just by declining to say that the pandemic will go away on its own, and by not acting in a way that literally makes the virus worse, Joe Biden is expertly positioning himself as much better on the top issue of the election. All Trump knows how to do is talk to the concerns of people who already agree with him, and the worse he does with everyone else, the louder and stupider he brays to his base. Perhaps it's a political move I don't understand. As per Peggy Noonan, I don't know. Seems pretty self-defeating to me. That's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader produces The Gist. He's very pleased that Ganja, the second biggest city in Azerbaijan, was only mentioned in that exact context as the second biggest city in Azerbaijan. It is also home to Ganja State University, of which no merchandise is sold to snickering 20-year-olds. It is simply a prestigious research institution. Margaret Kelly is producer of The Gist. She did see 60 Minutes last night in its entirety except on the West Coast. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcast. She thinks it's fine to give some information, some factual information about, say, I don't know, the topography of Ganja, the weather of Ganja. For instance, in October, Ganja experiences an average low of 19.5 degrees Celsius and 33.4, that is the average high in Ganja, the Ganja average high. The gist, hoping... If the next ganja ceasefire doesn't work, you might want to go with an edible. I don't know, a gummy, a tincture. The dude with the thumb ring in the dispensary, he could talk you through it. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.